please uh, raise whatever questions you might have. Don't be shy. Venerable, uh, so when we take uh, refuge in the triple gem, what are we taking refuge from? Refuge from? Is it suffering? What, are, what, what has made <laughs> us a refugee? Yeah, good question. From the storm. <laughs> the um, uh, refuge from the, the habits based on ignorance, not seeing clearly that the, the dangers of samsara, uh, the habits of mind that incline towards greed, hatred, delusion, those are all uh, things to uh, seek refuge from. So the path is to end suffering in our life. Mm -hmm. But if we believe in antidote to suffering, implicitly aren't we believing in suffering also? So what I'm saying is that why don't we look at suffering and inquire what is it? Maybe we'll find that it is our own creation. Mm -hmm. yes. And yes. then it might go away probably more easily rather than uh, the longer way on. Well, that's kind of what the Eightfold Path is. It's just looking at suffering to realize actually there is no suffering. <laughs> so that it's a, you know, you start from where you are, like I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sick, and we, we start from our habits of uh, attachment and self-view and so on. So the, the Buddha began with, you know, why are we not totally happy all of the time? Is it the case that, that uh, we are not completely happy and blissful and liberated all of the time? If the answer is um, yes, I'm not blissfully happy and liberated all of the time, okay, why? <laughs> so you're starting off with the present experience and then investigating. So the Eightfold Path is just one way of talking about that, that investigation, looking at those different areas of life. And um, that's something that um, my own teachers have emphasized, uh, you can find Dhamma talks of Ajahn Sumedhu where, where he quite clearly says, actually, we talk about suffering, but really there isn't any suffering. It just seems that way. <laughs> yeah, it really feels like that, but uh, when, <laughs> when, it, when it's looked at, then uh, it says, if you're a cat, it's like, yeah, I want in. Let me in. <laughs> or, or let me have something. <laughs> and it feels real. Um, and if you're a child or an animal or an unreflective human being, you don't have that, that reflective capacity, then suffering is absolutely real. So for a child, when they feel pain, that pain is absolutely real. A part of the capacity that we have as human beings, with both the mixture of comfort and blissful qualities that are available, as well as painful and miserable ones, it makes the ideal environment for being able to, to look at where those difficulties come from and to, uh, to uh, explore them and to, to see, oh, actually, really, there isn't anything solid there. Uh -huh. So that um, that... Uh, also, in the, in the Northern Buddhist tradition, in the Heart Sutra, uh, the, um, uh, the, the wording in the Heart Sutra is, there is no suffering, there is no origin of suffering, no cessation, and no way, no, no understanding and no attaining, there is nothing to attain. So that's, um, you know, uh, looking at things from the ultimate perspective. You know, all 
descriptions of, of suffering and a path and, and so on, these are all relative ways of speaking. Um, and they're there, they're spoken because the Buddha was speaking to unenlightened beings. So he's from the position of enlightenment, he's speaking to those who don't understand clearly. So he's helping them to, to see clearly through spelling that out. So say there is dukkha, they're noble truths, not absolute truths. That's why they're called the Arya Satcha. Uh, so noble truths means they're conventional truths, but if they're understood fully, then they lead to the realization of the ultimate truth. So dukkha is not an absolute reality, it's, it's a, uh, an impression. It's a rel relative truth, but if it's understood, uh, and again, Ajahn Sumedhi would, would make this point very regularly, that they're, they're noble truths, not absolute truths. And in the West, uh, often uh, times people would misunderstand uh, the Buddha's teaching, say everything is suffering as if dukkha was an absolute reality, um, that there's nothing but dukkha in the universe. And if, like, well, if that was the case, then <laughs> there'd be no meaningful way to talk about the cessation of suffering. So I feel that's a very helpful way to understand the Arya Satcha. They're noble because if they're understood, they lead to that which is genuinely uh, liberating and, and of, of genuine value. The, uh... Wonderful. Uh... Okay, one more and then somebody else, because uh, there's a lot of people here. Is all sadness or even if you feel angry sometimes, all anger, I mean, if you see a photograph of a child, washed away on a shore who was trying to cross borders from his country to some other country. You might feel sad about it. Mm -hmm. But is all anger, all sadness suffering, or is suffering that heavy kind of quality that's like pulling you down into the ocean? Is suffering that kind of quality? So I guess what I'm trying to ask is that, is all anger or kind of all irritation that you feel suffering or is it possible that we feel irritation for some time because the way people are doing is they're creating nonsense which will create more nonsense you see that so you feel irritated but you don't really feel suffering is possible well there's a few things put together there is that remember the, the teaching about the first arrow and the second arrow so the first arrow is part of life that uh, you know we uh, we experience pain, we can feel sadness, we can feel grief. Like I was saying about the Buddha making that comment about the assembly seeming empty because Sariputra and Moggallana passed away. So that the first arrow, yes, that's intrinsically part of life. I would say anger, <laughs> using the word anger, almost invariably there's some kind of grasping involved in that. It's almost always destructive. You can be fierce without being angry. So you can speak strongly and in a loud voice. And there's a, a dialogue between uh, Ramdas and his teacher Neem Karoli Baba. And Ramdas asked, I think, and Ramdas had a lot of anger <laughs> uh, in his character. He asked um, his teacher Maharaji, "Is anger always completely unskillful and inappropriate?" And then Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba said, "Yes." Anger is always destructive and inappropriate and never to be used. But sometimes, some teachings are best delivered in a loud voice with great vigor. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Uh, sir, I have uh, some advice and uh, something to seek from you. Uh, with a little bit of background, because that's important for us and men of whom the class we belong to. I have been in the profession of arms, that's Indian Army, for the last 38 years. Now I have retired. 
somewhere in the middle of my career i also felt that i must uh, lean towards spirituality i did that but what i found was it is making me too humble compassionate suffering forgiveness yes because our job requires certain degree of you know it's, it's very hierarchical it is autocratic because orders need to be given they need to be followed it has consequences if are not done correctly mistakes of to agree cannot be tolerated so i have to step back and uh, now i retired 3 years back after 38 years so i want to seek your advice because we have in in our army we have religious bias yes but that is more of a stress buster advice short term advice to get out of the difficult situations when you go through some trauma stress etc but this kind of uh, self actualization discovering yourself who am i uh, i don't think we probably can ask in our professions <laughs> what advice uh, do you have for men who are in the arms uh-huh. uh, interesting question we did have the british army visiting amravati from time to time different units we had a bomb disposal squad uh, coming to to visit uh, a couple of years ago the they they knew about samadhi <laughs> the, the <laughs> one pointed concentration on defusing a bomb so they that was familiar territory for them and uh, so um yeah I, i think people forget that the buddha was a soldier before he was a monk uh, from you know at least the age of 16 to 29 he was in the army yeah He was a, there's no mention in the canon of any kind of military campaign i get a feeling of whitewashing myself just my personal opinion that the fact is that he was a, a kshatriya as a warrior noble and he was uh, the crown prince the fact that it's no there's no mention of him involved in any kind of armed conflict from when he was a teenager to when he was the age of 29 so that's a long time to go without any kind of battles to be involved in so maybe so maybe as a as a, a bodhisatta the karmic forces around the sakin kingdom meant there was no conflicts with the kolians or the the magadans or anybody but uh, and maybe it's heretical to 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 think that but i wouldn't be surprised if in his earlier life that that he was involved in armed conflict and that would have probably have been part of is there's no mention of it in the canon but i do get that feeling i do a lot of editing and when when you do edit when you're an editor you kind of notice what's when things have been cut out <laughs> this there's, there's sort of hmm there's a noticeable absence here <laughs> but anyway that's just my personal theory it's not anything uh, i would make much of but certainly he had life in the military environment and many many of his analogies that he uses like the arrow like the soldier shot with the, the, the two arrows um there's many military analogies he uses in his teaching like the the foremost serious rules are called parajika defeat as a military term you know you, you've been beaten so that's like the four parajika means like the four defeats it's it's a military term so uh that is there in the background and um i think the um the way that he organized the 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 sangha and the, the aspects of seniority uh, and the the legal agreements that are made for the sangha to come to decisions i think that a lot of that was informed by his his background of of how do you organize a group of people to function in a, a well integrated manner 
as for uh, advice for people who are in the, the military, it's, it's interesting in Thailand, and I've got two, two Thai monks here, and probably, hopefully would agree, that um, one of the interesting things in Thailand is that people who are very honorable and reliable get appointed to the higher ranks in the army. So the army is very highly respected in Thai society. And the people who get promoted are the people who have a, a, a high standard of virtue and uh, reliability, responsibility. Um, and that uh, it's also the case in Thailand that every 10 years, everybody in the military gets three months paid leave to be in a monastery. So you can take a temporary ordination and that your family will receive your pay while you're in the monastery. And that works for women as well as men nowadays. So, and they think, well, what would a military officer do joining a monastery for three months and then going back to the army? It's like, well, <laughs> the more mindful and attentive, uh, well-balanced uh, and responsive rather than reactive a leader is in the military as anywhere, then the better it's going to be for everyone who's uh, gathering together to carry out the tasks that need to be done. So that uh, I felt it's very kind of enlightened small e aspect of Thai society they see that it's really worthwhile having the people who have military power as well as as administrative power in the country that they are people who are encouraged to be moral to be responsible to be mindful and to be able to to work harmoniously in a, a non-contentious way with others so uh, I don't know how it works in the Indian army uh, or in the Thai army but certainly if you want um, to leave the monastery, you know, if you join the monastery and you take up that training, if it no longer works for you, you can step out of it. It's very easy uh, to, to disrobe and leave the training. So to, to make that uh, some kind of spiritual training uh, available for Indian Army members, uh, enlisted people or officers, and uh, to see that that's not a contradiction to the role in the military, you're not, it's not supporting the destruction of life that's uh, a part of the military world, but in, uh, in terms of providing human resources or human support for the human qualities of the members of the armed forces so that they can draw upon those resources, take a, a short periods or longer periods, they can do that, they can go back and they can perform in that role better. If they then feel, because of the moral qualities, I can't do this anymore, I'm, I'm aiming to miss all the time, <laughs> if they're in a combat situation, then they, they would, uh, I would hope, be able to go to the commanding officer and say, I can't do this anymore, I need to uh, res resign from my, my post, uh, when can I leave the army? <laughs> and so that if that uh, flexibility of being able to leave when your heart's no longer in it, uh, with a, as a considered move, I think if that's um, available, that would be a skillful thing. But um, providing those opportunities to go and spend time in an ashram, in a monastery, and time on meditation retreats, it can be extremely valuable. Uh, I know that uh, the, the Indian prison system has greatly benefited from uh, going to these ten uh, day retreats, and both for the, the prisoners and also for the, the prison staff. <laughs> They've uh, all been greatly benefited. So I would imagine that if um, people in, in the Indian Army have the support and also that they, they're still getting the, uh, their pay while they go on a 10-day retreat or go into a, a monastery or to an ashram for a month or three months uh, as part of their, their life, then that would be something that would support uh, the welfare of the, the system. It, it's, it's tricky, you know, as a... As a, a, a monk, uh, we're, we're pacifists, you know, I'm not even allowed to touch a weapon. 
you know, are part of our rules. I can't even physically touch a, a gun. That's against our, our, our Vinaya rules. Uh, so, and we obviously we encourage peacefulness, and, and uh, Panati Pata is precept number one. But uh, also, people who are in the army, the navy, the, the armed forces, they are human beings. <laughs> like everybody else and uh, either they've been drafted or they've, they've made their choice and so having made that choice then why should the teachings and the practices not be available for them to help live in a skillful way and as I was saying about Thailand that uh, it's, it's seemingly quite a deliberate choice to have yeah, responsible, reliable, moral people in positions of leadership in the military and that to, to create a a supportive environment to help the welfare of the nation. I mean, it's a big, big subject, but uh, those are my initial thoughts. And interestingly, when we had the, the, the bomb disposal squad coming for a day, the, um, the commanding officer, the, uh, the major, he really got into walking meditation. You know, you, know, you do a lot of marching in the army. <laughs> so we had this period of walking meditation, and he rang the bell, and all the other recruits kind of showed up, and the, and the major was still walking, and it's like he was so concentrated he hadn't heard the bell. And so one of the, the, uh, the team had to go over and say, you know, sir, we, we finished. <laughs> and he said, oh, that was really interesting. Yeah. So he, he got the walking meditation. It was very natural for, for him. So, a, any other questions? Yeah. Um, Venerable, in Mahayana, um, very often one of my teachers speaks of uh, liberation or arhatship as the state of fearlessness. Even fear is something that a bodhisattva doesn't experience. You just have clear seeing. And then in Vajrayana, there's a lot of talk about one taste and everything being of blissful uh, experience. So from the point of view of a higher enlightened being, what I uh, have discerned is that they do not necessarily any longer experience even physical pain or fear at some point. This question of, you know, 24-7 blissful state. <laughs> yeah, that, you don't get that represented at all in the Pali Canon. The Buddha had chronic back pain. Yeah, that wasn't a manifestation as a teaching device. It was back pain. Yeah. But how can we say that? Hmm? How can we say it was not a manifestation as a teaching device? Because the, well, <laughs> there's absolutely no indication whatsoever, like zero percent. So the it. uncommon biography of the Buddha is not something which is very, I mean, the, you know, the secrets or, or I guess it's just different in the southern tradition. I was just curious. Yeah, there's, there's no, when the Buddha gets ill, he's ill. It's not a teaching, it's illness. <laughs> it's a, it's a very different, the Buddha is seen in quite a different way in the southern Buddhist tradition. He's not this sort of super cosmic, painless sort of um, quality. You know, his illness is, he, he's really ill. His headache that he had for three days is a real headache. His back pain, he says, my back is paining me, the assembly is still awake, I'm going to go and stretch my back, carry on giving the teaching. It's not a skillful means just to get Sariputra or Ananda to give a talk, his back is hurting. And it's every indication in the canon. I mean, I wasn't, I don't think I was there. <laughs> but every indication in the canon and the way that the teachings are presented is his illness was ill, his body was sick, he had dysentery. Um, and Ananda needed to look after him. And um, he says at the beginning of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, 
I've now reached 80 years. My body is like an old cart held together with straps and, and strings. And the only way I can experience comfort is to completely absorb the mind into emptiness. So it's just, it's a very different take on the, the, the representation of, of the Buddha. And so Arahants feel pain, ordinary physical pain. <laughs> and to me, I feel that representation. And to my knowledge, the, uh, the, the, the few Arahants I, I've known, that, yeah, they get sick and they experience physical pain. And so there can be the perception of those sensations and also emotions, but there's absolutely no delusion or attachment around them. So one time, uh, when Jack Cornfield was a monk with Ajahn Chah back in the late 60s, even further back, <laughs> most of northeast Thailand is very, very flat, but it borders on the north of Cambodia, and there's a hilly area down between Ubon province and Sisaket and the Cambodian border. So Ajahn Chah had been invited to some event at a branch monastery down near the Khmer border, and he'd taken Jack along with him as a, as a junior monk. And they're sitting in the front of this pickup truck, and they're, they're herring around these, these twisty roads through the hills. And uh, Jack becomes convinced that the driver's got a death wish, because they're kind of herring around these corners, you know, on the wrong side of the road, not, not looking, not slowing down. So Jack is thinking, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And, uh, and Jack tells this story. He, he looked over and he saw that Ajahn Chah's knuckles were also white. <laughs> and then they got to the end of it, and Ajahn Chah gave him a big grin and said, scary ride, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a scary ride, but also, so? <laughs> so it's a, it's a very different picture that you have in the northern Buddhist world than the southern Buddhist world. And to me, I feel like that's a great strength of the Southern Buddhist teaching, is that the Buddha is far more relatable. And so it's extremely helpful for people to know that the, the great enlightened master, the, the Lord Buddha himself, had chronic back pain. So you can, there can be a way of being with chronic pain, and it's absolutely not a problem. The pain is there, it's felt, it's painful, but it's absolutely not a problem. So to me, that's a really good example, really, very, very helpful. Uh, I can't really speak for the Vajrayana um, tradition or what you have in, the, in all the Northern Buddhist scriptures. I'm not so familiar with, with all of it, but certainly in, in the Southern Buddhist world, and I've been around enough Tibetan and Zen and, and Chan Chinese teachings to know that they, it is sometimes talked about you. Know, the Buddha manifested in illness as a as a teaching device, and but in the in the southern Buddhist world, it's like no, people might learn lessons from it, but it was it was just regular dysentery, you know, <laughs> just off the shelf ordinary dysentery. That was what he was experiencing. It wasn't sort of a special performance for for the sake of the assembly. It was like no, a sick body. <laughs> Another interesting. Um, you're asking about fear, so that scary ride story. Ajahn Chah was very against um, fortune-telling and superstition, and uh, which is a big, <laughs> has a big presence in Thailand. The kind of people often go to the forest Ajans for, for their fortune-telling and uh, protective spells and such like. So Ajahn Chah was quite uh, anti all of that, and um, so like palm reading is one of those things. And one day this, this palmist uh, came to, to visit, and he was a bit shy because he, he knew that Ajahn Chah didn't approve of this, but he wanted to go and listen to teachings. And as Ajahn Chah was teaching, he kind of kept trying to get a look at his hands. 
because uh, he was sitting f- quite far back and he was kind of intrigued by some of the things that he saw and eventually he sort of got his courage together and came up and said, Lumpur, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a palm reader, um, would it be okay if I looked at your hands? And so, and so Ajahn Chah gave him a, you know, a good workout <laughs> and said, yeah, oh, what are you going to tell me I'm going to win the lottery, I'm going to um, you know, marry a nice girl and... <laughs> and uh, anyway, so the after afterwards, okay, tell me, yeah, take a look. And this fellow looked at his hands and he said, "Oh, Lung Ho, you know, forgive me for saying so, but you've got a lot of anger." And he said, "Yes, but I don't use it." <laughs> <laughs> so another question, please. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's not in the Pali Canon. It's um. It's in one of the commentarial... Ajahn Chah used to tell that story. So how is that interpreted in the southern tradition? Well, the story goes that um, there's a famine and uh, they only have horse bran to eat. And so Ananda is... um, uh, The version that Ajahn Chah would tell was that um, if people would assume that the, the Buddha's sense experience was extremely plain... And then um, that um, you know, that his sort of equanimity or, or the Buddha's sort of un, unruffleability was that he wasn't affected by you know, sound or sight or, or taste or whatever. Um, and so there's this famine and they're eating horse bran and Ananda says, oh, this is wonderful, it's marvelous, even though you've only got bran to eat, the Tathagata is eating this with, with great equanimity, and even though this, this food is so coarse and so plain. And so then, in the copy I have, uh, the Buddha took some of the bran from his bowl, rather than his mouth, took it from his bowl, gave it to Ananda and said, here, eat this, Ananda, and you'll taste things as the Tathagata tastes it. So Ananda has this mouthful of bran, and it's this kind of explosion of incredible flavor. Like, wow! Amazing. And he said, <laughs> and then, yeah, it's wonderful, it's marvelous, it's incredible, uh, Lord. There's this uh, powerful, exotic, so delicious taste, even from bran. He said, yes, uh, this is how the, the Tathagata experiences things. He has an acute sense of taste. But even so, his mind is completely without attachment, even to this powerful and exotic flavor. That's not in the Pali Canon. But the story of the famine and them eating horse bran is, and it's, um, the, the story goes that uh, the Buddha hears the sound of the bran being ground up, and then he said, what, Ananda, what's that sound? And he said, oh, it's the, they're grinding up the horse bran to eat, that's just all the food that we have. And he said, good, uh, good Ananda, you have conquered like, like good people, to, for the Sangha is, is content to eat uh, just ordinary uh, horse food, animal food. Uh, because uh, uh, this is all that we have uh, available right now. So the northern tradition has uh, that more of elaborate story, but it's, it's drifted down. So I have a memory of Ajahn Chah telling that as an instance of, you know, when, when you're mindful and fully aware, it's not that the sensory world becomes like a bland mush. Rather, you know, the Buddha's sensitivity was highly acute, but he was not attached to, uh, to what he tasted. So I'm not sure where Ajahn Chah got that from. It may be some commentarial literature that uh, um, I have looked for that particular story in the canon a lot. <laughs> but it, it's, uh, I think it's in some kind of commentarial source that uh, I'm not sure of. Yes? You mentioned earlier a situation with Ajahn Sumedho where he experienced anger and then he realized that because he loves uh, the other monk and the, the whole story basically. Mm-hmm. 
So when someone is dealing with, you know, uh, their own intense emotions or relations where there is a lot of history or intensity basically where you need to probably bucket different experiences <laughs> with that particular person, uh, you probably cannot uh, decode everything in one sitting, uh, mm-hmm. right? So in that case, uh, is it a good way to exercise patient endurance and also take your time in whatever practice works for you and take it slow until you can actually come to a better understanding of that situation and then you can skillfully navigate it. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) The one useful rule of thumb is that uh, if if it's for you, you want them to change for your happiness, wait. Uh, and just sit on it, uh, just as you described, you know, look at it, work with it. Uh, uh, when you get to the point where you would like them to change for their benefit because of the difficulties they're creating for themselves and the world around them, and the, the fact that it'll help you or please you as well is a kind of pleasant extra, but it's really um, mostly for, for them, then that's usually a good, uh, good time to act. Also, not too much... Um, fixed uh, agenda. You know, I'll, next time we meet, I'll definitely tell him. You know, like, well, perhaps, you know, <laughs> not, not a sure thing. Just to, to wait for the, the right moment. And it can, it, it, you know, sometimes with these kind of situations, I've, uh, I've waited for a couple of years for the right moment to come around. And then when it, but when it comes, it's like, there's a sort of ding, okay, now. <laughs> And then it, it can pass very quickly, but if just in a particular encounter, a particular place, particular time, it's like, oh, right, this is exactly the moment to, to bring this up. And if, you, if you're patient and attentive, then often that's a, that is the best way of handling it. Yes. I need a little bit of clarity about uh, consciousness uh, beyond uh, the simple meaning of just uh, awareness. And particularly in uh, jhana practice, uh, where there's a, a step of uh, infinite consciousness. So how does one understand? I have a little difficulty in understanding this, if you could please. Thank you. Uh, well, the um, Arupa jhanas, the formless jhana states, um, speaking about infinite space, no thingness, infinite consciousness, and neither perception nor, nor non-perception. They're the, the names that those states have. So, uh, infinite consciousness, um, I don't have experience of those states from direct experience myself. So just speaking about it in terms of of the the theory or what you find in the teachings, it's uh, uh, that quality of of cognizing um, and the emphasis being on that feeling of of knowing. So it's like a, a, a strong sense of uh, subjectivity and infinite space would be objectivity, like vastness in terms of objectivity, infinite consciousness, vastness in terms of subjectivity. These are all naturally pretty spacey areas to talk about. They're arupa, <laughs> they're formless, but uh, that's the simplest way of, I would say, of describing it. So that you know, even objectivity and subjectivity, they're both relative terms. They're not absolute qualities. And 
uh, awareness when it's, I would say, when it's fully purified, it's subjectless and objectless, that both subjectivity and objectivity fall away. But in those states of, of super-concentration, then I would say infinite consciousness is that sense of uh, the, the, the subjective knowing is limitless. That's how I understand it. I just wanted to ask a question about when you're meditating on compassion, instruction is to expand your compassion to all beings. I just wondered if you had any particular advice on how to kind of engage with that, because sometimes I get a picture in my mind of like a wave of light going across a map or something like that, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. I just find it difficult to engage with people that I have never contacted and will never contact. <laughs> uh, and not just the people. The, well, yes, the, the, the birds, the, the centipedes, the whales, the, the zooplankton. <laughs> Every, everybody. Yeah. Um, well, in those practices, it, it, they, they can easily sort of devolve into a, having a kind of a geography lesson or a biology lesson. <laughs> you kind of go through lists or a, a kind of a, a laundry list of, of beings and it, you, you're actually sort of losing the feeling of compassion or, or loving kindness as you go through your list. And so for, for these kind of practices I found it's far more helpful to make the emphasis on the, the cultivation of the quality itself, get, really getting a feeling for what karuna is consciously generating that quality, feeling it, knowing it, letting that really fill your own being and kind of making that kind of 60, 80% of what you're doing and then bringing to mind the different categories of beings, the, the, the land beings, the air beings, the water beings, the beings in different realms and so on. Rather than going through the sort of phylum by phylum of the... <laughs> Of the the vegetable world, the animal world, the you know, the biosphere, and the, or geography, like okay, so what what's what's east of Himachal Pradesh? What's the uh, you know? I know Uttar Pradesh is over there. That, you, know, you kind of get lost in the detail. You know, it's well intentioned, but uh, you can Northampton. What is is Leicester north of Northampton or south of Northampton? <laughs> So uh, our thinking mind can get sort of drawn into the details. So uh, for myself, it's different for different people, but I found it far more helpful to uh, emphasize what, the, the, the quality itself so that there is that um, brightness of heart and the quality of compassion uh, is cultivated. And then uh, with that uh, sort of uh, fully sort of... Uh, Cognized and developed and strengthened, then to be spreading that that out, and then you know, so then all just imagining the globe of the Earth in one way, and then uh, radiating around uh, the globe. And it's without too much detail; it's simple enough. Just wrapping the globe with that quality, or radiating out into space. And one of the ways that I, I used to to do that kind of guided meditation. So sort of usually with loving kindness rather than with compassion, but as a loving kindness meditation, would then sort of after all of the the beings of the earth, uh, the the ones we know, the ones we don't know, the ones that uh, that we like, the ones we dislike, uh, the ones that dislike us, and the ones who like us, and you know, different categories of beings, and then uh, radiating kindness over the entire world and spreading out beyond the world and beyond the. Uh, 
the solar system, the Milky Way, the galaxies, and, and then finally you know, far, far, far beyond the, the visual and experiential field of the, the known universe, then coming up against a, a barrier or a, an, an edge and feeling the edge that, uh, that is met at the end of the universe and finding that the edge is the shape of your own body and the whole universe has actually been here uh, within us the whole time. So sometimes I would use that as a, a way of kind of completing that kind of uh, uh, radiating out into the world. So it's a way of, of recollecting that uh, you know, the whole universe is, is as the Buddha said, in this, this very body with its thoughts and perceptions is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So I hope that's helpful. Yes, son. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more about the uh, liberative uh, kind of relationships with some examples or maybe, you know, uh, especially in close family, I mean, uh, put very simply, my kids and grandkids are overseas. I miss them. How do you deal with it, you know? It is uh, so anything which can help uh, understand, you know, how we can liberate ourselves mm -hmm. from the clinging, from, you know, and then sort of let them free, I think you said, which was the, the key part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, so liberative love... Well, in, like with many things, you begin with dukkha. <laughs> you begin with that feeling of, of attachment and that um, what, what the, 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 the present feelings are that arise. Rather than trying to climb over the feelings that are there to replace, to, to get to another feeling, to be fully conscious of this feeling of, you know, I, I love you, I want you near, I miss you. And just letting yourself feel that and say, what's this, what's this feeling of missing? And... And, and knowing that, knowing that feeling, knowing that emotion, letting that be fully conscious, but um, to the degree possible, not making that me and mine, but just here is missing. It feels like this. Here is um, this, here is a sense of separation. This is felt here. It feels this way. Just to know that that feeling as it is, so that it's the kind of where you start, like like in the Four Noble Truths, idang dukang. This is dukkha. <laughs> Here it is. You start at that point, and so then, really letting that be known and letting that the painfulness of separation be felt. Um, so that ow, <laughs> again with as little story as possible, because our, our minds easily get very busy around it. But just. The, the less verbal, and I'm speaking as a very verbal person, <laughs> the less verbal, the better. Just to let that be felt. Um, this is the pain of separation. It feels like this. Ow! Full stop. You're not suppressing it. You're, you're, you're knowing it. And then just to be uh, f fully conscious of that. And to the degree that the mind is aware of that pain of attachment then you're arousing that quality uh, that, or that wisdom, that sense of, of uh, say, clarity that says, you know, why do I want to do this to myself? Or do I have to do this to myself? And it's not as an idea, not like, like you shouldn't be doing this to yourself, you're a bad meditator, you know? <laughs> but, you know, but rather that is coming from your own heart, your own jitta, that, your own wisdom saying, Wow, this is painful. Why do I do this to myself? Or do I have to do this to myself? 
And so that's helping the, it's like creating the causes for, for letting go or transcending. Then also wise reflection, using uh, the ability to investigate um, and to, to look at the situation different ways. Like, well, my children, uh, yeah, they are, I call them my children, but also we are just living beings sharing this life together. Right now they're my children. Perhaps I could have been their children. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much people go along with, with past lives and future lives, but um, to me, as soon as I heard of that, that as a possibility or as an idea when I was about eight or nine years old, somebody immediately said, well, that makes sense. <laughs> the, the, the Anglican Christian model of you're born out of nothing and then you either go to heaven or hell forever after you die. It's like, that does, even as a small child, it's like, that doesn't make sense. I didn't know what made sense, but that, uh, I, uh, that doesn't sound right. Um, so when I came across the uh, past lives and future lives, but uh, just to tell you a little story, again, this involves an Indian family, but it's by coincidence. So about three or four years ago at Amravati, this family came to visit, and uh, there's an Indian woman who was about in her mid-30s, uh, early 30s, and she had a child with her and then two parents, and she came along and said, oh, I used to come to Amravati when I was my daughter's age. She's, you know, she's eight years old, and, and my parents brought me. Uh, they, were, they were kicked out of Africa from Uganda, and they came here to Britain, and so they used to bring me to Amravati when I was a little girl. And I've been, oh, I've been so busy. I've, you know, time, so much time has gone by, but I really wanted to bring my daughter here um, to, uh, to see the place and to get to know the place, and so we really want to come more often. So kind of an ordinary, average, everyday visit. So the mum is doing most of the talking. You know, grandparents are sitting behind being quiet, and the little girls are sitting there being quiet. She says, can I ask you a question? And I said, yes. And so she said, who was I before I was this person? And I said, oh, that's an interesting question. And, um, and she said, well, because um, I know that, you know, I remember being my granny's mother. And I want to know who I was before that. Interesting. She said, my grandmother, I was her mother, and I remember that. But I want to know who I was before that. Quite straightforward, very serious little girl. And so, <laughs> and so um, she, <laughs> and uh, her mother was sort of looking at her slightly strangely, and she said, and the little girl turned to her mum and said, so I'm older than you are. <laughs> yeah, I was your granny. <laughs> Quite, you know, this very matter-of-fact, straightforward conversation for the little girl. It was still very clear in her mind. So she said, I, how do I find out who I was before I was my, my granny's mother? Uh, I said, well, you're on your own there. I can't, <laughs> I can't help you with, with, with that. But um, I said, you know, that it's not just a matter of who we were immediate, in the immediate past, but because um, when she first asked the question, um, she said, I want to know who I was before that last life. And I said, well, the, the Buddha said we have, uh, we've had uncountable births and we've, we've lived so many lives and we've been each other's... Um, and I, I actually said, quite coincidentally, we've each been other, other's parents and children you know, many times over. And she said, well, I remember being my grandmother's, my, my granny's mother, but I want to know about what happened before that. <laughs> so... I take that as a true story. There's no reason to disbelieve her. She was, she was really quite serious. Um, I was a bit disappointed I couldn't say, this is the way to find out. <laughs> but 
that simple way of looking at your children and saying, well, this might have been my grandmother or my great-grandfather, and that right now this is my child, but that hasn't always been the case. That, that uh, just because there's this parent-child relationship in this lifetime, why, why is that a, a fixed picture? You know, why, why, is it, why can't we see it differently? And um, that sense of we're living beings together sharing a life and then letting go of the roles can be very helpful. And so that, uh, yes, there is this bond, this closeness between us, um, and uh, this is very, very sweet, uh, and it's taken shape in this lifetime in this way, but this can't be a permanent thing. It's, it's sweet at the moment, but it's, it's in a state of change. And, uh, and so looking at our relationships as part of a natural order is... Um, uh, a way like of reshaping our, our understanding, reshaping our our perception of things, and that's that's very helpful. The, the more that we can see our life and our relationships, our, our our perceptions, our feelings as as part of a natural order, rather than just taking it personally, like uh, like we usually do, <laughs> then that all helps to change the way that we relate with each other, so that you still care about your family and you still love them, but there isn't that sense of, um, of missing or longing or separation. There's also in the, the book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, there's a passage that is very often quoted, which is, uh, your children are not your children, they are sons and daughters of life longing for itself. And that, uh, that's, a lot of people find that, <laughs> but it's a very wise teaching. You know, your children are not your children. They are sons and daughters of life longing for itself. They come through you, but they don't belong to you. Uh, that's changing the way that we... Relate. And I found when I was growing up uh, as a teenager, I had a lot of conflict with my father in particular, a lot of clashing. <laughs> and so, I, I, speaking of creating people, <laughs> there was a lot of typecasting my father in this sort of role of authoritarian that I was opposed to. I was a sort of hippie anarchist and he was, he was born in 1913 in a, a very sort of conservative, ordinary English middle-class family. And he was the youngest child of older parents. So my, his parents were born in 1863 and 1875. My grandparents. So he grew up in a very, very different world. When my grandfather was born, London had no electricity. There were no motor cars existed. A very different world. <laughs> so uh, uh, as I got into my, thir my 30s and early 40s and began to, to be the kind of age my father was when I was born, because I'm the youngest child of older parents as well, um, then I, I began to, to see his life from a, a broader perspective and appreciating... Well, of course he was like that because <laughs> that was the world he grew up in, this sort of um, the era of the, the British Empire and colonialism was kind of ordinary and I was in the sort of free love, hippie anarchist, 1960s generation. Of course we saw the world in very, very, very different ways. <laughs> and that uh, that sense of, well, yeah, uh, he's not just my father, and in that role of telling me what to do that I, that I, I then disagree with. <laughs> but rather, 
he's this being coming into the world, living the life guided by his parents who were Victorians, kind of uh, grew up in Victorian England. And he had his conditioning, his perspective. And I have my, born in 1956 and growing up in my era, this is my perspective. And so we're sharing a life together and we're close. You know, he's my father and we share this life together. But no wonder we see it so differently. And that that sense of, yes, there is father-child relationship, but there's also, we are sharing this life together as fellow living beings. We're on this journey together. And have, adding that to the picture, it made so much <laughs> such a huge difference that uh, it wasn't just in that role of, uh, that you, you put someone into in childhood, but you see a broader perspective. So I hope that's helpful. You can have a whole week-long workshop on this, but uh, we're covering a lot of ground in a short period of time. But, uh, so maybe people would like to take a little break.